Welcome to the One Heart Podcast from Concordia University, St. Paul, where we share the stories at the heart of our CSP community. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the One Heart Podcast from Concordia University, St. Paul. I'm your host, Billy Schultz. Today's guest is Dr. Jared Brown. He's an assistant professor at CSP, teaching and leading the program for the Master of Arts and Human Services program, both with emphases in forensic behavioral health and another emphasis in trauma, resilience, and self-care strategies. He's an expert in a such a wide variety of mental and behavioral health areas. Today, he talks to us about gut and brain health and how those are so deeply and intimately connected. With that, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Jared Brown. <music> Thank you for being with me today, Jared. Absolutely, Billy. Thank you for allowing me to chat with you and your audience today. Absolutely. Let's start to get to know you a little bit and first talk about how you became interested in the mental and behavioral health fields. Yeah, growing up, I can re- honestly remember back to even like seventh grade and some of you who like graduated in the 90s, you probably have seen Silence of the Lambs. And when I saw that movie, I was just fascinated with human behavior. And I always wanted to become like a behavioral profiler. And I was really interested in like the FBI and and jobs like that. So as I started uh, digging deeper into this, as I got into my college career, I started taking lots of psychology and criminal justice courses and started to learn more about the interconnectedness between like mental health and human behavior. And as I got more certifications, more knowledge and awareness on this topic, I'm just really fascinated by the brain, by human behavior, by mental health, by trauma and substance use and brain injuries and and the gut-brain health access, which we'll talk a lot about today too, and how all this intersects. And I'll share a lot of a lot of things I've observed over the years, just professionally and just through my my training and experience as well. Well, that's fantastic. So you you became interested in all these topics. How did you pursue um, your education? What careers have you served in? How has that unfolded now uh, as you as you've walked through uh, your life? Yeah, so I started out when I was a terrible student in high school. I mean, I literally almost probably dropped out of high school. Thankfully, I went to post-secondary education. So in 11th grade of high school, I actually went to college. And that really started changing my life around. And I was able to just become more interested in, in learning. And after I obtained my... Sorry, Billy. After I attained my two-year degree, I went on to obtain an undergrad in psychology and applied psychology and learned a lot about psychology at that point. But with having an undergrad in psychology, where do you go from there? Mm -hmm. Got to go on the master's degree, in my opinion. So I ended up taking a master's degree in criminal justice. So I started to combine the two at that point. And I really started to become motivated to, to learn at and just dig deeper. So I went on and obtained another three graduate degrees in a variety of topics related to like the brain and mental health counseling. And as I went through my schooling, I just built up more 
confidence in myself. And I decided it may be a good idea to go on for a doctorate degree. I didn't have a lot of confidence. Like, could I really do this and stuff? But I didn't. I, I went through a doctorate degree in psychology. And since that time, I've, I've obtained a lot of graduate certificates, a postdoctoral certificate. And I'm in school right now for different oh. things. And I'm, <laughs> I'm doing a lot of work now and taking classes and trainings in Lots of topics related to like biochemistry hmm. and nutrition and sleep and the gut. And a lot of times people ask, why in the world are you doing all these things? And you got enough schooling and stuff. But when I learn about complex human behavior, and I do a lot of work now in like just going on podcasts, talking about a lot of different high profile serial killers, the more I can learn about all of these different mechanisms that are at play. I just feel like I'm in a better position to really understand maybe why some people do what they do. And the fun thing about all this stuff too, is everything I learn, I try to bring back into the classroom and mm -hmm. just incorporate that in, into the teaching I do with, with the students at Concordia. Yeah, that's super important, right? To have that, that sense of, of being an educator, uh, but continue to become more and more proficient and experienced and uh, have that that diverse array of knowledge in, in your subject matter. I appreciate it. Yeah. And I've always, anytime I teach a class, I'm always trying to just get people to get interested, stay curious, don't have a narrow, narrow lens because there's so many possibilities. Obviously it's good to have a, a, a good goal in mind, but there's a lot of ways to get to that goal. And you may learn some things along the way that could enhance that or change your whole focus and I always just stress the importance of lifelong learning. It doesn't mean you have to go get another degree, but just appreciating reading journal articles, listening to scholarly podcasts, just really stay current on things, regardless of what field you're in, because I do think it opens up the door to advanced career possibilities, more networking opportunities, and just building more professional competence in your own self, which will hopefully trickle down and helping the organization you work for or the clients you serve. Yeah, that's that's huge. Let's talk about your role real quick at CSP and, and what sort of classes you're currently teaching. Yeah, I, I, I'm the program director for the, the Master of Arts degree in Human Services with an emphasis in forensic behavioral health, as well as the emphasis area in trauma resilience and self-care strategies and teach a lot of the courses in those programs. I do co-teach quite a few courses with Janina Schick as well in these programs. And I teach a few courses with her in the CJ program. And I also teach a handful of courses in the online psych program as well. So I really enjoy teaching graduate and undergraduate, but all the courses I do teach are 100% online. Mm -hmm. And I've always found that helpful because I'm a huge introvert and it's, it's fun too, to meet folks from all over the country and even the world sometimes, mm -hmm. but we have students from all over. And so I learn a lot too, from the students in these cohorts. Yeah, that's fantastic. Let's talk then about your current scholarly interest. Uh, you mentioned gut brain health access, but what are some of the other areas in which you're currently doing, uh, research and study yeah i do i right now i actually i go on a lot of podcasts nationally and internationally and i just started doing this in the last handful of years and I, i've really found this to push me to that next level of really helping me stay as current as possible on a variety of fields of study 
And where I'm doing most of my work right now in terms of like developing trainings and content and going on podcasts and even writing articles about is the field of neurocriminology, which is basically taking criminology research and then tacking on biochemistry, Hmm. neuroscience, genetics, and psychophysiology research. And it helps to better understand complex human behavior, criminality. I'm doing quite a bit of work now, too, in a field that if you're interested in diseases and illnesses, if any of you are working in healthcare, even the mental health arena, it's a field called psychoneuroimmunology. Basically, what that field is, is pulling together like psychology research, neuroscience, and our immune system. And it really talks about kind of a holistic understanding and a mind-body approach to really understanding human illness, diseases, and disorders. And part of that research, it talks a lot about the gut and our hormones and our endocrine system. Some other topics that I do a lot of podcasts on and I've written some articles on, I do a lot of work in the area of traumatic brain injury. And the reason why I'm interested in that is well over 50% of folks in prison have a history of traumatic brain injury. Wow. I'm really spending a lot of time now related to a topic that blood sugar dysregulation. And the, the reason why I'm focusing on that, people, if you've never studied that, there's a lot of research that supports the fact that blood sugar dysregulation may be a huge driver for mental health problems. There have been several studies that have also looked at low blood sugar levels among offender populations. They've done studies on homicide offenders, domestic violence, arson offenders. So I'm really spending a lot of time digging into that world. And that is a huge topic because so many folks probably deal with blood sugar dysregulation. You don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. And for example, like if you come to work one day, you skip breakfast and maybe you like your energy drinks or sugar-sweetened beverages, that those factors alone throw off your blood sugar. And if you have students that do that, they sit in the classroom, their memory doesn't work as properly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they might have more attentional issues. They could be more irritable. So this has implications for student learning as well as employee health and wellness. And then part of this too is the gut-brain health access, which I know is kind of a big focus of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, so let's dive into that. What What is the great gut-brain health access? Uh, why is it so important for us to be aware of what it is and, and its impacts in our lives? There are some statistics out there that say as many as like three quarters of the American population deal with some level of digestive health issues. Wow. And if you look at populations who have serious mental health issues, The research really leans to the fact that nearly 100% of people that have serious mental health challenges have something not working properly in their gut. Hmm. And this does not matter what field of study you're in. When the gut is off, the brain is off. When the brain is off, the gut is off because of that bi-directional communication between the brain and the gut. People are surprised to learn as well that the gut is our hub of immunity So people have really poor digestive health functioning. They may have more immune system functioning, so they might get sick more often. Most of our serotonin is actually produced in our gut. 
And serotonin is linked to mood states, depression. So if someone has depression, that's a pretty good indication that their gut is not working at optimal levels. Obviously, there's a lot of other things going on. And if you look at the reasons why people go to their primary healthcare doctor in the United States, gut issues is at the top of the list, along with daytime fatigue, pain-related problems, and sleep issues. Those are the big four. And a lot of times, those four really relate to one another because if someone's not sleeping well, that's been linked to more gut problems. If someone has gut problems, that can impact their energy level during the day. If people have already underlying chronic pain issues and their gut is off, that can almost put fuel on the fire because, again, Mm -hmm. remember, the gut is the hub of immunity. And if our immunity is off, our gut's off, that creates more inflammation in our body. And inflammation is kind of like a slow burning fire that has been linked to most diseases and illnesses and all kinds of different things. Billy, any questions on that before I go deeper in the weeds? It's, it's a really fascinating, huge topic. Yeah, that is uh, super fascinating. And I know my wife works in the mental health field and and I know that she's, she's talked about some of this before too, you know, in terms of how our guts can affect, you know, even uh, simpler, not simpler things, but, you know, things just like, you know, general anxiety um, as well as some of those deeper conditions. And so, uh, it's fascinating to to think about how our bodies interplay, all our different parts work together. Um, and when they work together well, that's great. But but when there's some sort of dysfunction somewhere, uh, how that cascades throughout, it, it's absolutely fascinating to think about. And when it cascades throughout, that's a great reminder to just let your audience know like the gut-brain health access doesn't just involve the gut and the brain as a whole. Mm-hmm. Central nervous system is part of the gut-brain health access. Our autonomic nervous system, something called the HPA access, which is called the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access. Mm-hmm. Why should you care about that? Let's say if you're an educator, because if you have a student that's dealing with tons of stress, depression, anxiety, worry, there's a high likelihood that their HPA access is off. And that is a hormone regulator and it's part of our endocrine system. And if that access is off, it's been linked to more mood problems, more energy issues, sleep problems, all kinds of things. If you're ever dealing with professional burnout, your HPA access is not working properly. That That's pretty much a guarantee. So if anyone listening to this is really focusing on like burnout prevention, learning about that access and feel free to share my email with folks, Billy. I have lots Mm -hmm. of handouts and resources on all these topics, but the gut brain health access also is linked with like hormone signaling. And why should you care about hormones? Because it's really our body's Wi-Fi. I did not Mm -hmm. come up with that term. It's in like a book. I don't remember which one, but just think if your internal Wi-Fi is off, your whole body's not connecting properly and sending the appropriate signals, which then over the long haul, if this access is off over and over and over again, over many, many years, unfortunately, if you look at the research, people that have prolonged gut health issues may be more likely to have allergies. They may be more likely to gain weight or if you're ever trying to lose weight, this is a big factor that gets in the, in the way of weight, the ability to lose weight. 
most people with autism have gut issues. There is plenty of research to show, and I don't want to worry anyone, and I'm not saying this would happen to you, but they are doing lots of research looking at digestive health issues early on in life, and then how that may somewhat influence Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, Mm. multiple decades down the road. And there's so many different disorders and diseases that are linked with more gut health issues, even type 2 diabetes. Several studies show that there's a high likelihood that someone's digestive health is not working at optimal levels. So those are just a few of the disorders that are talked about in this research literature. And before I talk maybe about some of the causes for, for this, what what disrupts this? Do you, any other thoughts, Billy? Anything you want me to go a little bit deeper into, or no? I think I think it's important to to talk about the causes and and then maybe some of the solutions that we can uh, find for for some of these issues and 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 think about how we're taking care of our own bodies or, or seeking uh, the right professional interventions as well. Think about who you hang out with. That influences our gut. There's research that shows that having a solid support system plays a role in helping our gut improve. If you hang out in a group of people that are just not very nice to you and take advantage of you and put you down, that's been linked with more gut health issues. Think about what you eat. Tons of research shows that the Western way of eating, the Western diet, which is basically like fast food, foods that are highly processed, loaded with sugars and sodiums, food coloring additives, emulsifiers have been linked with more gut health issues. If you're one that loves your sugar-sweetened beverages or diet sodas or excessive energy drink consumption, all of that can absolutely impact the gut. Interestingly, too, people that have been on antibiotics a lot throughout their life have been linked with more gut health issues exposure to environmental toxins. So if anyone's ever like, maybe they're living right across the street from a a busy freeway or a factory, environmental contaminants Mm. have been linked to this. All kinds of things, someone living in poverty or homelessness situations. So like lower socioeconomic factors can exacerbate this. If you're dealing with any kind of high levels of stress worry, fear, burnout, if you're not sleeping well, if you're burning the midnight candle and you take your work home with you and you just stay up all night grading papers and you don't get much sleep, all of these factors can have a huge impact on the gut. There's all kinds of things to think about. And there's actually, interestingly, Billy, there's some studies that have actually looked at this topic within the context of college students. Hmm. And some of the studies have shown that college students may have more gut-related problems, which is basically called gut dysbiosis. So if you hear me say that term, gut dysbiosis basically means something's off with the gut, Mm. which makes sense because if you look at the research on college students as a whole nationwide, what do we know? They're more likely to use alcohol. They're more likely to not eat properly. They're more likely to stay up all night. So just the way a college student's lifestyle is can factor into this. The very nature of going to college can be stressful at first. You you mm-hmm. go from maybe a very structured environment, 
now to an unstructured environment. So there's a lot of research on this too. So this is a huge topic, I think, for college students to at least be aware of and faculty members because a frontline intervention is first to understand the topic and even know that this research exists. Before I jump into several solutions, any anything else you want me to go a little bit deeper into? Yeah, so I think I'm I'm just curious, you know, what your thoughts are on um and, and maybe this comes with solutions too, but but the role of exercise and and kind of our more sedentary lifestyle we have here, I think in the West, um, does that also play a role in adding to these issues as well? Absolutely. I am not advocating for anyone, if they listen to this, to set up an exercise plan or anything with your students, unless it's related to what you're doing and you have the appropriate credentials and things like that. But Billy, yep, you will find several studies that talk about sedentary behaviors being a risk factor for increased inflammation, depression, loneliness, joint pain, and even there's a connection between living a sedentary lifestyle and being more likely to consume higher degrees of food that's not good for you. Mm -hmm. So the very nature of not exercising or ever moving has absolutely been linked with more gut problems as well as emotional, cognitive, and behavioral problems. On the flip side of that, you will find a few studies in the exercise literature that talks about, in some cases, overtraining, overtraining mm. syndrome, where people that take it to the extreme, that may cause some more disruptions as well. So it's got to be a fine balance. Mm -hmm. Doing nothing, not good at all. Doing way too much, not good at all. But yes, a sedentary lifestyle is part of that. Western mentality. And if you look at the Western mentality and some of that literature, excessive screen time exposure, increases in sugar, more stress, more worry, more fear, more uncertainty. And just think about COVID-19. I didn't even talk about that research yeah, today. Yeah, that's a huge, huge piece too, right? <laughs> Everything I'm talking about today, if we add COVID-19 related stress into the mix, it's just pouring gasoline on the fire. It makes it worse. So depending on the student you're working with, or even you as a professional listening to this, how did COVID-19 impact you? For some people, maybe it didn't impact them a lot, but I know a lot of people where it did impact them on a lot of levels, emotionally, behaviorally, financially. And some folks now are dealing with a huge increase in anxiety and worry and depression and so yes, COVID-19, a big variable too, that just makes this issue even more complicated and more important for us to understand. Yeah. Have you had any, uh, come across any literature that connects um, COVID-19 and the possible implications of, of the persistent infections in the gut with that increased risk of, of other issues as well? Yeah, there's a lot of studies on COVID, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds for the audience with the medical side of this, but if you look at that literature on psychoneuroimmunology, that's that's one way for us to better understand how COVID maybe not only impacted our physical health, but our emotional and behavioral and psychological health as well. Obviously, when we talk about COVID, think about brain fog symptoms. That's talked mm -hmm. about the long haul COVID there are several people that I know that had profound digestive health issues when they got COVID. Some people didn't have a lot, so it can be very individualized. 
But there is literature in the COVID realm that does talk about the gut and digestive health issues. And again, I'm not a medical doctor, but talk to your healthcare provider. But one way to strengthen your body's immune system, get a better functioning gut, because again, Mm -hmm. that's the hub of immunity. And that's where a lot of our hormones are produced. And if our gut is off, we're more vulnerable at the cellular level to disease and illnesses and infections. So as we think about um, all the different things that we can do uh, to help strengthen our gut, help better take care of ourselves, um, maybe beyond some of the obvious things or the very surface level, eat better, exercise more, maybe what are some of those specific interventions that that we can do as individuals uh, to better uh, strengthen our gut and and then you know have those cascading uh, improvements in in our overall health and well-being. I'd like to introduce your audience to a field of study that's fairly new. It's called psychogastroenterology, hmm. and basically what that is, it's it's gut health psychology. And if any of you are working in the mental health arena or teaching like psychology courses, mental health counseling, this field of study, I think, is going to explode in the next few years. Basically, it's using like mental health interventions through like a trained mental health professional to target gut health issues. Hmm. So they use cognitive behavioral therapy, relaxation strategies, mindfulness-based interventions, even acceptance and commitment therapy and compassion-focused kinds of interventions Hmm. are talked about in that literature. So that's psychogastroenterology. That would be done more with a trained mental health professional. But practically speaking, just things for all of us to be aware of. And again, I'm just giving general education. Talk to your healthcare provider before like developing a plan for yourself. In my opinion, at the top of the list is getting better sleep. Sleep is number one to health, in my opinion. And then really taking a look at your nutritional habits. Billy, in a couple of weeks, I'm actually giving a talk for a group at the, on the national level on food insecurity and its impact on college students. Oh, yeah. That's another topic to be aware of. And there's some research on the national level that indicates maybe as 40 to 50% of students may be dealing with some level of food insecurity. Wow. And food insecurity has been linked with more gut problems. Mm-hmm. Another practical thing that maybe we forget about is do you drink a lot of water during the day or are you someone that just drinks lots of soda and coffee and you forget to stay hydrated? Looking at some of that literature on chronic low-grade dehydration is really eye-opening. Getting proper exercise and movement. Again, I'm not asking you to set up an exercise plan. Getting your stress level down. Any kind of stress can throw off the gut. So learning more healthy coping strategies. Hmm. Regulating your blood sugar levels is highly recommended. So if you're one that skips breakfast every day or at night right before bed, you consume a ton of food, that can spike your blood sugars, it can crash them. Another thing that we forget about, and there's a big connection between what goes on in our mouth and our gut, if you don't ever go to the dentist, that can actually not only impact, obviously, your teeth, but your brain and your gut. So Mm -hmm. supporting your gut, you're supporting your your dental health as well. And technically, the digestive health system starts in the mouth. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really fascinating stuff. 
if you look at some of the literature specific to college students, they actually do talk about potential interventions is maybe to use mindfulness-based strategies with students if obviously that professional is trained and your college and your programs are okay and it, it relates to what you're trying to do. Enhancing problem-solving abilities in students can be very helpful, including helping them learn greater levels of health literacy. Hmm. You will find that in some of the food insecurity literature that one reason why college students may have a higher degree of food insecurity is lower levels of health literacy, which means maybe they don't know, know how to read labels effectively. They don't go to the healthcare provider for routine checkups. So increasing health literacy can be helpful. It also talks about strengthening executive function, which is the CEO of the brain. If you're a professor listening to this, Feel free to email me if you disagree with this, but my opinion is executive function is the number one thing that guides the bus with academic learning and performance that is related to decision-making, problem-solving, conflict resolution, and so on. So those are a few things you're going to find in the college literature. But in the gut-brain health literature, too, there's some studies that talk about infusing positive psychological interventions into what we do as well. Mm. Just how we talk to people. Do we come off as hopeful or optimistic? Do we have good compassion? Do we promote self-esteem? Do we promote self-efficacy? These are all things actually linked to improving the gut as well, as well as mental health. And people might find this really fascinating, something to th think about as well. I'm a big fan of the literature on green space and blue space exposure. And I, I try to weave that into most talks. Basically, it's common sense once you hear it. Green space is getting out in nature more. Blue space is being around water more. And in the green space literature, it talks about if you get out in nature more, rather than sitting in your house being glued to the screen, that might reduce depression, anxiety, worry, loneliness. And there's a couple studies that show it may have a positive impact on our gut health as well. I can keep going deeper in the weeds if you want, Billy, give you some more. Or if you have any questions or anything, I can just clarify. Yeah, I think that was exceptionally uh, clear and uh, very practical too. I think it's so many things that we hear about a lot that are, like you said, there's some common sense involved with it, but I think sometimes we don't always put the pieces together. We see all these things as, as separate and, and disparate topics, but yet when we think about them together and how they can actually positively affect us when we, when we look at the whole rather than individual parts, um, I think that's super helpful for people to to think about and and, and for myself as well. <laughs> yeah, I just think in my my lens, my training, I just I don't think you can separate like let's say mental health issues from gut health issues. If you're studying mental health, if you're dealing with mental health, you're not going to go wrong learning about the gut. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you're going to diagnose yourself, but just learning about this stuff can help us maybe make some progress practical changes. And I would say one more practical area I didn't really talk much about today is 
I'm also a fan of the self-compassion literature. So if you are a professional listening to this or a student, self-compassion means that you can cut yourself more slack when you screw up or make a mistake. You have more self-kindness. And people who practice self-compassion on a regular basis are more likely to exercise, the research says. They're less likely to get sick. If you deal with pain-related issues, self-compassion has actually been linked with lowering pain in your body. And the reason for that is if we're nicer to ourselves, that calms down our system. If we calm down our system, it means we calm down our inflammation, which can help us just feel better, sleep better. And it's also been linked with having greater levels of resilience. And it can help us improve joy and happiness and interpersonal functioning, to name a few. And I would leave it at this too. If you're listening to this and you're a professional or an administrator, there's a really strong argument to be made empirically and common sense wise that if you're focused on burnout prevention for your staff, it is equally important to understand this topic of the gut-brain health access because high levels of staff burnout obviously are linked to more stress, anxiety, depression, people calling in sick, more more conflict in the workplace. But all of these things have also been linked with more gut health issues. So if you're trying to develop like a burnout prevention plan, do the good work you're already doing, but maybe infuse maybe like a, a discussion or some handouts about the gut as well. That could play a critical role in helping your staff maybe recover from the burnout much more quickly. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fantastic. So, so as we wrap up today and, and, and kind of simmer on some of these uh, important topics for ourselves, um, both individually and uh, collectively in our organizations, our schools, uh, et cetera. Um, our culture, I think, is, is uh, for very good reasons and very helpfully uh, becoming more and more aware of mental and behavioral health issues and um, being okay with sharing uh, the fact that we might be struggling with anxiety or depression or other uh, different issues. Um, are there other ways that we can take more action in our own lives beyond the the ways that you've shared um, in addressing kind of gut brain health things or, or are those kind of good across the board for, for, for anything that we're thinking about or struggling with? Yeah, I think, I mean, that is a, a big component, but if we look at this through a mental health lens, obviously if you're dealing with mental health challenges and listening to this, no shame at all going to talk to a professional first and mm -hmm. foremost. Know that you're not alone. COVID-19 has amplified it on a lot of levels. We know from the research from college students on the national level that a lot of stress, anxiety, depression, worry, loneliness, finding a support group, just being around people who make you feel known, heard, valued, appreciated can make a huge difference. Maybe it's talking to a nutritionist or dietitian, taking a hard look at what you eat. That plays a huge role in how you feel. If you notice you are not sleeping well and you're waking up all the time at night, maybe you sleep all night long, but you wake up in the morning exhausted all the time. Could you be dealing with an untreated sleep issue? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Could it be insomnia? Here, I've consulted on some cases where the person has dealt with untreated sleep apnea. Once they got their sleep apnea fixed, made a huge difference. Looking at 
who you associate with, looking at the the pressures you put on yourself. If you are a perfectionist, that's been linked with more mental health problems. Having that self-compassion can make a huge difference. And just practicing general self-care strategies, and there's a million of them, but I'll, mm -hmm. I'll give you a couple just to think about that I've used personally or just know from the literature. Deep breathing exercises can be very helpful. The very nature of just getting in the habit of doing some deep breathing every day has been linked with lowering inflammation, activating your parasympathetic nervous system, which helps you feel more rested and calm in the body. A big, big threat to our emotional health is excessive screen time exposure. So if you're one to work all day long, come home, stay up all night on the screen, that is a threat to our emotional, physical, and behavioral health. So really taking a look at screen time exposure can be very helpful. And again, I'm not giving nutritional advice, but if you're skipping meals all the time and pounding down tons and tons of calories and going to the buffet and having 10 plates of food, something to maybe take a look at. The very nature of laughing can be helpful. Hmm. Gardening, being around animals. I do a lot of work in neurocounseling. And in that literature, it talks about it's very therapeutic just to put together puzzles. So find hobbies, find yeah. skills, find interests, disconnect from work, take breaks, find a network of people again who understand you. These are just some basic self-care strategies I think any of us could probably use. For sure. I think there's a, it, it can be overwhelming, I think, to think about taking those steps for ourselves because there are so many options. There's so many different ways to do it. And yeah, we can't not work. We can't not take care of things in our houses or for our families, um, you know, volunteer things that we do. But um, what what you lay out and how you explain the things that we can do don't need to be separate necessarily either from those other responsibilities and, and those other things that we, we are involved in that, that we're committed to. And so um, I think it's just, it's, it's wonderful to think about um, very tangible, very easy steps that we can take. Um, and I, I know that when I've taken some of those steps in my own life, that there's a noticeable difference, um, even just doing small things. And so I think, yeah, the more the more we realize each of us that there are little things that we can do and we do see tangible results from them, I think that just creates positive momentum, um, more ownership of ourselves and, and how we feel and, and how we treat ourselves. I think it, it, it just, it can really have such a good positive impact um, for ourselves, but then the people around us as well. Yeah, you knocked it out of the park, Billy, and, you know, just start small, cut yourself some slack, be nice to yourself if you make a mistake. We're all human. Journaling can be very therapeutic. The research shows that journaling can be very helpful just to get our thoughts together. Maybe you're kind of lost in the shuffle. Where do I begin? Well, just jot down a few ideas. I think th those are just a few things to start thinking about. And again, I mentioned the dentist, something practical, go to the dentist, go to your doctor for a checkup. I mean, those kind of things that if you are one to just burn the midnight oil again, I'm not asking that like you can make dramatic changes right away. But even if you were to cut down on your screen time by 30 minutes, and then the next week, it's 35. And the week after it's 40. And 
gradual progressions, you're more likely to probably stick with it as well. And, you know, maybe go for a walk, but you're more likely to exercise if you do it with other people. So maybe Mm -hmm. get a commitment with some other people of like-mindedness who have your best interests in mind and challenge yourself as a group and, and do these things. You will see some progress and this can trickle down into helping improve academic performance as well as professional performance as well. If we just take care of ourselves again, we're, we're probably going to function better. We're going to be more patient probably with our coworkers. And in our home life, we're probably going to be more effective in whatever we do in our home life with family, friends, neighbors, and things like that. So it can impact all facets of our life. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your your wisdom and expertise with us. And um, we'll definitely uh, drop a link in our uh, show notes for your email, um, as well as if there's any other links that you want to provide for for different uh, pieces you've written or, or, or resources that you find helpful. We can certainly do that as well. But again, appreciate your your time today. And, and thank you for uh, all that you do to uh, create, uh, I think, an intellectual curiosity and um, a sense of, of personal growth and learning that that then you can pass on to our students at CSP as well. Thank you so much, Billy. Honored to be here. And thank you, everyone, for taking time out of your day and listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening to the One Heart Podcast. We invite you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and consider sharing with a friend. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the One Heart Podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of Concordia University St. Paul. The material information presented herein is for general information purposes only. The Concordia University St. Paul name, all forms and abbreviations are property of Concordia University St. Paul, and using them does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service.